Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where Cambridge University students chat with the experts who have contributed to the festival. We tried to pair up students with researchers and authors from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. I'm Ruben J. Brown, a second year architecture student, and today I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing two distinguished scholars of Shakespeare on their new collection of the great playwright and poet sonnets. Dr. Paul Edmondson is a reverend of the Church of England and the head of research at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. Sir Stanley Wells is the Trust's honorary president. Both Paul and Stanley have written many books on Shakespeare, and their most recent of three collaborations is All the Sonnets of Shakespeare, a fresh, clarifying look on Shakespeare's use of the sonnet form, which offers the opportunity to question and understand Shakespeare and his works for a new audience and in a new way. The sonnet is a strict sort of poem. 14 lines of 10 alternating stressed and unstressed beats, over three ABAB rhyming structures, ending in a rhyming couplet. But within all that structure, Shakespeare made the form his own. So without further ado, let's get into those questions. Paul Emerson and Stanley Wells, welcome to Say That Again Slowly. It's a real pleasure to be with you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ruben. Good morning. Hello. So I wonder if we could start by briefly laying out how the sonnet as a form of poetry began, how it reached the English language, and how it reaches the pen of William Shakespeare. But where did Shakespeare find the sonnet, Stanley? Well, its, its origins lie several centuries before Shakespeare, particularly in, in 14th century Italy. But it came to England primarily in a book called Tottle's Miscellany, published in 1560, uh, which is a collection of the sonnets of Thomas Wyatt uh, and the Earl of Surrey. Uh, and that was a very popular book. It reprinted a number of times. Shakespeare refers to it in Merry Wives of Windsor when the young uh, would-be wooer, uh, Abraham Slender, wishes he had his book of songs and sonnets here. He's a very nervous, tentative wooer, uh, and he wants a bit of help in his wooing. So it's, it seems to be quite unquestionable that Shakespeare must have owned a copy of Tottenham's Songs and Sonnets, and that's where he derived his knowledge of the form and his enjoyment of the form. So he, he was growing up with a, a European literary tradition which yeah. had found its way into English, which was becoming really popular, yeah. and it became more and more popular, didn't it, in Shakespeare's early, yes, it early did. part of his Yes, life. it did. From 1591 onwards, when Shakespeare was, what, 27, the publication of Sir Philip Sidney's Solid Sequence, and sequence is an important word to bear in mind here, I think, because there are 17 sonnet sequences written or published at least between 1591 and 1597 and they are sequential in the sense that the sonnets actually follow on from one another and all but one of them are addressed to a woman to a specific probably in many cases an idealized woman and you write of the short vogue for sonnets in england in the 1590s specifically but shakespeare was using the form much beyond this fashionable moment and I wondered if we know or if we have theories for why Shakespeare keeps returning to the strictures of the sonnet as a form and made it such an important part of his writing, often to a very personal effect. Yeah, well, he clearly found it a congenial form. He must have found it a challenge because it's not an, it's not an easy form to write. It requires compactness. It requires economy of expression, I think. It's a, it's a form that appeals to a poet with intellect yeah, because true, it's a yeah. form uh, in its way architectural. It requires balance. It requires compactness, as Stanley says. 
It requires a working out. It requires a discipline yeah. of <laughs> a story within its own little 14 lines structure or a, a mood which somehow develops and takes the reader and the poet on some sort of journey so that you end up with a working out of mood or story or emotion or description and then you have this couplet at the end, which finishes the whole thing off and seals it. And it's a climax. It requires a sense it. of climax of a wonders. So, so Shakespeare clearly found this very appealing because we find the sonnets in some of his plays, as well as 154 of them published in 1609. So yeah. everything we've just been saying about the form is, is still absolutely the case, I'd say, for, for our modern poets who, who want to write sonnets. So I, I want to begin with the 154 collection of sonnets published in 1609, which you describe as revealing unsettling and original expressions of Shakespeare's feelings and thoughts, which you say is different to how other sonnet writers were using the form to represent an idealised vision of a romantic love. So I want to wonder what other themes the sonnets address, because there's also some sort of more abstract ideas going on here. There's, there's sonnets about religion and time, and I wonder if you could touch on some of those. Well, sonnets about time and mortality are common in Shakespeare's period. Sonnets about religion are common in Shakespeare's period. There are some sequences entirely of religious sonnets. But, but, but what, what we would want to say about them appearing within Shakespeare's sonnet collection is that these illustrate the variety of Shakespeare's sonnet project, that he's definitely not single-minded yeah. when it comes to the writing of this kind of poetry. And the other things that we find in Shakespeare's collection are sonnets addressed to abstract concepts. You've mentioned time. Other sonnets there are among the, among the 1609 sonnets addressed to, to love or to the muse. This, again, illustrates the variety of his, his project. Yeah. Um, and also I want to say that not all of Shakespeare's sonnets, by any means, are addressed to anyone no. or to anything. Um, Twenty-five of them seem to be little essays in miniature. Written from the first-person perspective. So to come to your collection, I'd first like to start with the chronology, the order of the poems being published now in the order which you believe that they were written rather than the order that they were published in the 1609 collection. And... I wonder if you could explain how you came to that chronology that is presented in the book and what sequencing the poems in time order reveals about Shakespeare's development, specifically as a writer. The first part of your question is easier than the second part. Yeah. Uh, nobody had done this before. Nobody had tried to put Shakespeare's sonnets in chronological order of composition. And we realised that and we recognised and had noted over two decades the diligent work which had been going on for longer than two decades, of Professor MacDonald Jackson of Auckland University, New Zealand. And he's been working on the order of composition of Shakespeare's sonnets for many years and bears out that the order in which they're printed in 1609 is not the order in which they were written. And although this is an inexact science, it seems to us a good enough science to think, well, apart from the order that we're used to, since 1609, the order in which they were printed, what is the alternative way of thinking about these poems? And it's the chronological approach, the order in which Shakespeare wrote them. So let's just try that and see what happens. Yeah, we, 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 we diverged to a small extent from Mac Jackson's uh, chronology. One of the poems was dated in 1971 uh, as being a wooing poem addressed to Anne Hathaway because it has a pun in the final couplet. Which is Sonnet 145. Yeah. 
Uh, and uh, it's not a terribly good story. It is a rather slightly, one might say, immature poem or a fairly light, lightweight poem. And so we put that very early on in the collection, taking it out of the sequence in which it was published in 1609. But also we go even further than that because the, the collection is, the 1609 collection ends with two poems which are both translations of a classical poem, uh, a, a Greek is called an epigram. It's a little story about Cupid. It was realized again fairly recently that the last published one is actually the earlier version of the two. That the last but one published is a revision of the one that's, that's last published. This again hasn't been generally acknowledged. We decided when might Shakespeare have done this? When would he have been likely to be writing, uh, to be translating from a Greek poem, probably from the Latin? And I thought, well, probably it was at school. Why would he, in his later career, when he was a flourishing playwright, why would he have wanted to do these translations? So we conjectured that one of them was written first, and that then, as it were, his schoolmaster said, now, come on, William, you can do better than this. Let's <laughs> we dig it a bit. And so we put those two first. On this question of what the sonnets reveal as Shakespeare as a writer, it might be a good time to come to our first reading of one of the sonnets. And I was quite taken by Sonnet 76 on this, in which Shakespeare is writing about his writing. Stanley, I wondered if you could read Sonnet 76 and help unpick what it tells us about Shakespeare's approach to writing his poems, or at least specifically this poem. Why is my verse so barren of new pride, so far from variation or quick change? Why, with the time, do I not glance aside to newfound methods and to compound strange? Why write I still all one, ever the same, and keep invention in a noted weed, that every word doth almost tell my name, showing their birth and where they did proceed? Oh no, sweet love, I always write of you, and you and love are still my argument. So all my best is dressing old words new, spending again what is already spent, for as the sun is daily new and old, so is my love, still telling what is told. Fantastic. So your thumbnail sketch of the, of the sonnet reads, I do not seek to write decorated or fashionable poetry, because you and love are all I write about. And that's why my verse tries to present the same words and ideas in different ways. What's that saying about how Shakespeare would approach the writing of his sonnets? Well, it's it's very revealing, isn't it, about how he identifies with the poetic form when he 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 has the phrase that every word does almost tell my name, that he feels that his verse is so very characteristic of himself yeah. <laughs> that it's very revealing of himself. Um, it's not the case that this particular sonnet that we've just heard applies entirely to the 154 within the collection. It applies to a lot of them if we go looking for as it were, repetitions and the workings out of similar ideas across the collection, it, it will, as it were, draw some of those as iron filings to a magnet to itself and say, aha, these illustrate what Sonnet 76 is about. But I think that the dressing old words new, which is quite theatrical in its imagery, that you're dressing up language in order to convince people of new realities although we all know it to be repetitious because we've seen the play before, we've seen the situation before. That's a, a, a wonderful illustration, it seems to me, of Shakespeare's poetic imagination, his dramatic imagination, 
how he thought about his art, this yeah. redressing, this dressing up. This is, as we say in our note, a sonnet that could be addressed to either a male or a female person. Uh, it has, has normally been supposed to be addressed to a male because the myth has, has continued for the last 200 years that the first 126 sonnets are addressed to a, a fair youth or a male person. This, this myth was started by Edmund Malone in the late 18th century, who said that the first 126 are addressed to a male and the remainder to a female. It is utter nonsense and has done a great deal to create misunderstanding of Shakespeare's sonnets, in my opinion. It's a very harmful statement. One hears it still all the time that the first 126 are addressed to a fair youth, the others to a dark lady. The phrase dark lady occurs nowhere in the collection. It's a construct of, of the 18th century mind. So, so Sonnet 76, within that critical baggage which persists, doesn't reveal the sex of the addressee, yeah. crucially, so when, oh no, sweet love, I always write of you, we don't know who the you is. We don't know that. And we cannot say that that you is a male or a female, judged by this sonnet. Similarly, it's a you, not a thee, which suggests a relationship which is not as intimate as some of the other sonnets, which also should give us reason to pause and think pluralistically in terms of what these poems, 154 of them, represent or are about. So let's stay with the sexuality represented through the sonnets here for a second. Stanley, you said that Shakespeare sees sex as an inevitable part of love. He is aware of the difference between love and lust. We've just talked about the sort of misrepresentation that has pervaded for such a long time of who these sonnets are addressed to. And you have a sort of a new critical reading of the sexuality in these sonnets about bisexuality. And I wondered if you could touch on that and what your collection of the sonnets reveals and tells us about that. Well, one of the sonnets actually begins, Two loves I have of comfort and despair. And that's sonnet 144. And it goes on to say that these two loves are a, a woman coloured ill and a man right fair. Now, what's happened, Ruben, is that that sonnet has been used to divide up the collection by yeah, yeah. critics over two and a half centuries. And all they've seen across the whole collection is either or those two loves. The moment you admit that these sonnets were written over a, a much longer period, possibly as, as long as 30 years throughout Shakespeare's main writing career, then that really becomes unsettling. And the collection, what it represents, is, is much more complicated than only either or. So a binary, let's say, has been used to wield power over Shakespeare's sonnets by readers who haven't known enough, haven't been nuanced enough, haven't been sensitive enough to what the collection represents. What our approach has done is it's released Shakespeare's sonnets from that binary story. And when you look at them as individual poems, you still find very revealing moments about Shakespeare's relationship to his own sexual knowledge, his sexuality. And, and we find that to be undeniably bisexual, even though I've just quoted a sonnet that mentions I'm in love with a male and a female. Well, yes, he is. And it may not be the same male and female over this period of time. There are three love triangles in Shakespeare's sonnets, sonnets 40 to 42, and sonnets 133 to 134. And then the sonnet about a love triangle, which is sonnet 144. In those instances, it seems pretty clear to us that, that Shakespeare is bisexual in his understanding of how he feels and where his desire takes him. 
although these poems are individual poems, there are what we might call mini-sequences within the overall uh, collection. Uh, sometimes there are pairs of sonnets. The first 17 are addressed to a male person, uh, suggesting that, he, that it's time he got married. This, I think, has, has been responsible for an assumption that all the rest that follow that until the, until the break that all of those are addressed to a young man, which is, which is simply not true. Some of them, indeed, are personal meditations. One or two of them are um, epistles, uh, little sonnet letters, for example. Do you want to say something about those? Well, I just mentioned by number for now, um, 70, sonnet 77 and sonnets 25 are the epistle sonnets. So that touches on how important the movement to a chronology of these poems can be and, and what that can reveal. But the other novel thing your collection is doing is its incorporation of the sonnets that Shakespeare wrote for his plays into that chronology. And one of my favourite parts of the book is about how Shakespeare comedically depicts his dramatic characters writing their own sonnets to court the objects of their romantic desires. I wonder if you could tell us about one of these sonnet writing scenes from the plays. Well, I'm immediately thinking of Much Do About Nothing when Beatrice and Benedict, who obviously really love each other from the word go, have to be tricked into realising that they do really love each other. And Beatrice steps forward after overhearing uh, this played out conversation in front of her. And she speaks verse for the first time in the play. And it's a sonnet that she speaks when she's alone on stage. And it begins, what fire is in my ears? Can this be true? And that's a hugely delightful revealing moment of epiphany for the audience and for Beatrice herself. And it's a sonnet. As we get towards the end of Much Ado About Nothing, Benedict, it seems, is trying to write a sonnet in praise of, of Beatrice. And wittily, we hear that he can think of no rhyme for lady, but baby. <laughs> uh, and then at the end of the play, it turns out that they have, in fact, both of them written sonnets for each other, which we never hear, but we see as props on stage. And we see them reading each other's um, sonnet yeah. in, the, in the very final moments of this, of this comedy. So that's just you know, one example of Shakespeare's playfulness and not only using the sonnet as part of his own script, but actually dramatising the use of sonnets within the story. Yes, uh, in that case, of course, the sonnets are love sonnets, uh, and the most famous Shakespeare's most famous use uh, of sonnet form for for a, a romance is in Romeo and Juliet. When uh, Romeo and Juliet first meet, they they share a sonnet. It's fair to say, however, that Shakespeare doesn't always use sonnet for in the plays for romantic purposes. There are declamatory sonnets, for example, the the, the first chorus and and the, the the second chorus to Romeo and Juliet are both written. In, in a sonnet form, and in Henry V, the epilogue to Henry V is a sonnet. Is, is in sonnet form. So Shakespeare uses the form with great technical skill and technical variety too. You have a beautiful expression in the book's introduction that Shakespeare's plays echo with his sonnets, and his sonnets echo with his plays, and it is this interplay within his art that helps to make Shakespeare the supreme poet dramatist. I wondered if you could discuss how the sonnets within the plays both relate to and, and maybe differ from how he uses them in the personal collection of 154. Their diction is different, Ruben. So to go back to yeah. um, Beatrice, for example, it's, it's a poem, it's a sonnet of, of self-understanding revelation. That is what has, it has in common with some of Shakespeare's sonnets from 1609, where it becomes different is the declamatory style, perhaps, required for a public theatre yeah. that we hear within the actual writing of it, the diction, the choice of phrasing, 
within Beatrice's speech. And I think this applies to all of the sonnets used within the plays. But, but they're very, very varied, all the same, aren't they? I mean, when Cressida speaks what is a, a, a slightly shortened sonnet, it's an interior monologue, whereas Beatrice's, for example, can be addressed directly to the audience. And it's the interiority of how they're used within the dramas, which interestingly sheds light on how Shakespeare's 1609 sonnets might be thought of as personal. Mm-hmm. So just as whereas they put a spotlight onto a character in one of the plays, Beatrice, Romeo and Juliet, the Lords in Love's Labour's Law. So that's a slightly different example because they're reading sonnets which they've written intended for other people rather than speaking them, as it were, from their own characters. Shakespeare's sonnets, some of them are spotlights into his own feelings. You write with these personal poems that some of them have their own distinctive awkwardness. And that word was was quite interesting to me. We think of Shakespeare as this great supreme poet dramatist, as you write, and to think of him as an awkward writer was somewhat surprising. And I wondered if you could explain what you meant by this word awkward. Well, it partly means difficult, doesn't it? That that Shakespeare, in, in wanting to articulate complex ideas, complex and difficult ideas, notions, feelings, often struggles to do so, as I'm just struggling to make that sentence. (laughs) So when we were paraphrasing all of the sonnets for the back of the book, so that we were trying to broaden access to these poems for as many readers as possible, we preserved a sense of awkwardness in our paraphrases. We we didn't want to produce them any, anything too smooth. Uh, we decided to give the paraphrases simply because I said to you one day, these are very difficult poems, some of them, some of them more difficult than others. And then we said, well, why don't we help, try to help our readers by giving a, a prose paraphrase of them? So we've done that. And at the back of the book, you can go uh, and find a paraphrase of every passage that we quote, both from the plays and from the 16th. But, but they're, they're deliberately, as it were, literal. Yes. So they preserve a little bit of the awkwardness or they pre- try to preserve the awkwardness which we're trying to articulate. And and in so doing, if you were to read, for example, three of the paraphrases, one after the other, we like to think that it would give you a sense of how Shakespeare's mind operated, how his thought processes followed on from each other yeah. as they do in the sonnets. But we're not offering them as a substitute no. for the poetry of the sonnets. They're, a, they're a, a reader's guide, as it were, to the sonnets. To aid meaning, because yeah. the, the more we looked at other editions of the sonnets, the more we thought, well, actually, they're not really giving you that much help in understanding yeah. the, the, the lines where you, where you feel stuck. And that, yeah. that's what I mean by awkwardness. You know, what is he really saying here? And it's like being presented with a riddle moment within a single poem or, or the whole poem or a quatrain. Yeah, yeah. And you have to really work hard to think, to think through the meaning in some in, in many some of the sonnets. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Not, of course, the most popular ones. Like, uh, shall I compare this to a summer's day, for example? That's a lyrical poem, uh, which was voted recently, wasn't it? One of the, the, the most popular uh, poem in the English language by only about two thousand people, but so that it was an indication of the lyrical appeal of, of that of that particular poem to readers. I think who would be completely flummoxed by some of the more complex complex poems in the collection. And you've said that readers might might take their own interpretation of these sonnets and that, you know, these paraphrases, they're not necessarily canonical. And I was reminded of the sonnet made between Romeo and Juliet when they first meet that we've previously mentioned, which ends with Juliet saying, you kiss by the book. Your footnote to the line explains it as Juliet telling Romeo, he kisses by the rules and in an exemplary manner. When I learned it at school, there was always part of me and my teacher sort of had this, this joke that... Um, 
there was a chance that maybe Juliet was telling Romeo that his kiss was by the rules and therefore really boring, <laughs> which I which I kind of liked. I, I like that. It's almost as if mm. she was she was wanting something different, and that she may have experienced something different. She's had, had better kisses than Romeo, <laughs> <laughs> which I always think is is has always been a funny take. But with the with the difficulty of these poems, do you think that the sonnets would have been difficult for readers at the time of their publication, or is this difficulty merely a matter of historical distance for us? No, I think they were difficult at the time. Some I, more than others, though, yeah. one has to say. So, we must stress the variety of the collection. But yes, some of them would have been very difficult to read. We time. think this is perhaps why Shakespeare didn't want them published, one of the reasons, and also why they, when they were published, it wasn't a success. Because, you know, people, it, it was only, only ever one printing of the first edition. of There was no second edition. Um, and copies of it survived. So it wasn't, you know, read to pieces. And um, we think it might be partly because of their difficulty that, readers didn't engage easily with these poems as they had done with the sonnet sequences, which... And also, as they, had with, as they had with Shakespeare's own Venus and Adonis oh. and The Rape of Lucrece. Venus and Adonis is the most frequently reprinted of all Shakespeare's works in his own time. And it remains a sensation. It's, it's a wonderful <laughs> poem. It's not as popular, perhaps, as it should be, but it's, it's, it's a lovely... And it's very fluent. It is relatively easy to understand compared with many of the sonnets. This is where I think that the intended audience for these poems being so different to every other piece of published Shakespeare writing we have, basically, is, is a really important facet here. Yeah. That you believe them to be poems that perhaps Shakespeare didn't want to be published. Some of them don't demand an audience. Some of them are interior monologues. One or two of them we believe to be addressed to specific, but now sadly unidentifiable people, like the one in the beginning, Lord of my love. Lord there is, is ambiguous. It might mean Lord in the sense of master. It might mean Lord in the sense of an aristocrat. It might be addressed to a specific aristocrat. I did wonder how you come to this understanding over time uh, and whether your views of the sonnets have, have changed on whether their publication was sort of intentional or not from Shakespeare. I don't think we changed a great deal. We published a book on the sonnets in 2004, uh, a study, not an edition like this, but a, a study of various aspects of the sonnets. And I think we feel that some of the ideas, certainly that we're putting forward in our new book, had already been articulated in that book, but sadly not taken up adequately into the public discourse about them. Isn't that true, Paul? It's true. In terms of how I've moved on, it's not around whether he wanted them published or not. I, I, I perhaps sat on the fence more about that than I, I'm now definitely off that fence. I clearly have the view that he did not want these poems yeah, published yeah. for many reasons, uh, some of which we've touched on already. Where I have moved on is thinking about them more as personal poems. And again, this does not apply to the whole collection. It's as if Shakespeare's poems seek many audiences. And we, as a single reader, have to adjust ourselves into an, the imagined audience of this poem, or no, no audience at all, because they're so personal. Yeah. And, and, and I think we're required to do that by the 1609 collection, and I think that's what critics on the whole have not done. No, it, 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 uh, that is why the, the traditional narratives of the first 124 addressed to a uh, particular person and so on, why that is fallacious, uh, there, it, 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 does, it fails to acknowledge the variety of the collection, that these are many of them individual or sometimes closely related poems, but some of them are much more public than others. One of the poems that you 
writing the instruction seems to be surprised to find itself in the public domain is Sonnet 136. And I think it captures quite a few of the, the themes that we've just been discussing. I wonder if this might be a good chance for our second reading. Maybe, Paul, you could read this one and, and explain a little bit of what's going on here. So, yes, so um, it's, a, it's a rude one, Reuben. It's, it's about Shakespeare's penis and it's about his desire for the beloved. It's about his penis because he puns on his own first name, Will, in which clearly he was rejoicing as a, a phrase about his own sexuality, his own manhood, his own sense of how he expresses himself, his own sense of self. So we might say that this poem, perhaps of all of them, has Shakespeare's DNA within it. Every word doth almost tell my name, Sonnet 76. Well, this one actually does. It ends with the phrase, for my name is Will. Sonnet 136. If thy soul check thee that I come so near, swear to thy blind soul that I was thy will, and will, thy soul knows, is admitted there, thus far for love, my love suit, sweet, fulfil. Will, will fulfil the treasure of thy love. I fill it full with wills, and my will one. In things of great receipt, with ease we prove among a number one is reckoned none. Then in the number let me pass untold, though in thy store's account I one must be. For nothing hold me, so it please thee hold, that nothing me a something sweet to thee. Make but my name thy love, and love that still, and then thou lovest me, for my name is Will. It's a very, it's a difficult sonnet as well. Well, that's where I wanted to bring it up because for me, it's this sort of florid use of double, triple entendre and repetition in many different forms. And I wondered if there's something almost intentionally cryptic about this sonnet's meaning. Well, I think there is. I mean, I, I think the polyvalent possibilities of will, sexual desire, sexual organ, familiar first name of the, of the poet himself, is, is being used very playfully yeah. uh, uh, across the sonnet. Um, it's difficult to paraphrase this one. I mean, try and try, try, try doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll, you'll, you'll quickly, you know, feel you've, you've, you've come unstuck. You know, how, how, how can you summarize that? Especially the lines, for nothing hold me, so it please thee hold, that nothing me a something sweet to thee. This is very difficult to understand. It's like metaphysical poetry, isn't it? But then we gloss a something sweet to thee also perhaps implies that his penis is pleasing to the addressee. And nothing, of course, can refer to the female sexual organ. We therefore think it's possibly addressed to a female because it's the second in a pair of sonnets with 135, which is definitely addressed to a woman. So it, it seems to be a, a sequel as well as a poem in its own right. So how did the sonnet's readers, especially at the time of their publication, respond to these poems of, of such a personal and often salacious quality? Well, this is, this is another reason why we think he didn't want them published, you know, because there's no other sonnet of the period is like the one I just read. But we have no record of their reception, really, have we? We have one or two records of their purchase. The great actor Edward Allen paid sixpence for a copy almost as soon as they were published. 
But we don't have any, there are no reviews. There were no review journals in, anyhow then. There are no responses, are there? Uh, uh, early responses to, to the sonnets. They were published quite a while after the, the fashion for sonnet writing yeah, very much had, so, had died yeah. out, at least 12 years after. And there's reason to suspect that Shakespeare didn't even want them to be published. So they, they, the whole thing seems odd. Mm. You know, it, it would be wonderful to have an account of what an, uh, an early reader thought about the poem yeah, I just read. Did, yeah. Were they shocked? Did it make them laugh? Did they, did they feel an affinity with it? Uh, you know, this, this is how I think about My Willie too. <laughs> I mean, what, how, what yeah, we yeah. you know? Well, this is what I wonder about Shakespeare at this time is a, is a public figure. He's a businessman. And I wonder if this publication that we believe he did not want to be published, you know, does it change how people view him? If we don't have record of it, maybe not. Maybe we don't know. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, how Shakespeare himself felt about the fact that yeah, they've been published. Yeah, yeah. That would be wonderful to know. They were published in 1609 with the title page just saying Shakespeare's sonnets never before imprinted, which suggests that this was not Shakespeare himself wanting to be printed. It's a third-person publication, and the dedication is not by Shakespeare. Normally, a collection of poems like Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece, those bear Shakespeare's own dedication with his name at the end of it to the Earl of Southampton. Very interesting dedications they are too. So picture the scene in New Place, Stratford-upon-Avon. Shakespeare gets off his horse from London sometime in 1609 and Anne Shakespeare is there and a kind friend has told her about the, the quarto of sonnets which her husband has been published under her husband's name. And, and she's been looking at it and, you know, one can imagine a conversation, well, the sonnets you wrote about me are all there, but who are all these other sonnets? <laughs> Well, I think one of one of them that's quite interesting to me is um, Sonnet 129, which I'm just going to read the thumbnail sketch you provide for. Shakespeare is saying that to be possessed by lust wastes vital energy, which being acted upon promises heaven, but only leads to a hell of guilt. And I was reminded in the sonnet of St. Augustine's Confessions, a man looking back at his lustful ways and recognising its, its hell of guilt. And there's something really confessional here about some of these that suddenly gets put into the, into the public domain. You know, Sonnet 129 that you just read the thumbnail sketch of is one of the most extraordinary poems ever written at any time. Most of it's a single sentence for the first 12 lines, and then you get a break. And, and in, it, in it, you mentioned Augustine, and it is confessional, and it's Shakespeare conveying the effects of lust in poetry. I mean, it's, it's, it's masturbatory in the sense of its vividness and its breathlessness and its will to find a conclusion. And it's guilt-ridden as well, which, you know, pardon the pun, often goes hand in hand with masturbation. <laughs> that's, that's what the poem is about. It really is. And it's also about realising that lust will lead you to hell. And hell was slang for female vagina in the period. Did you read this one? I'm going to read it because it's, it's too, for it, yeah. too tempting not to. Sonnet 129. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. And till action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight, past reason hunted, and no sooner had, past reason hated, as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had, having, and in quest to have, extreme, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe, before a joy proposed, behind a dream. 
All this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Now, I, I can't help but feel a breathlessness when I read it. I can't help but imagine somebody reaching orgasm as I read it, and then the kind of pause and the recovery and the guilt that uh, can follow. So that seems to me to be an entirely original, brave, unusual poem that mm. I, I can't think of any other poem like it, Stanley. No, the, the closest I, I, I feel to these poems is, is the poems of John Donne, which of course are very much heterosexual in their orientation and which interestingly were posthumously published, the, the, the sexual poems of John Donne. Donne does come a, a little closer than other poets, I think, to this intensity of personal confessional feeling about sexuality. But Shakespeare, this is quite an extraordinary poem in its interiority. It's a very, very private poem, I think. And it's totally brilliant. I mean, you look at oh, it yeah. poetically and you can talk about it for ages, yeah, admiring the alliteration and the phrasing and the packing of past, present and future all in, in a single phrase. This is what lust feels like. This is what is goading me forward. And now I stop and I realise I'm in hell. It's a sonnet which speaks to some of the characters in the plays. It speaks to Macbeth on the way, on his, on his way to murder King Duncan, perhaps, thinking about Tarquin who raped Lucrece out of lust. It speaks to Giacomo climbing out of the trunk in Cymbeline and visually, as it were, raping the sleeping Imogen. So it, it's a, a theme which Shakespeare dramatises, but here it's compressed within a single poem. Well, it's, it's really wonderful to hear aloud, and I think it, it might be a good place to bring to a close. So Paul Emerson and Stanley Wells, your new book is All the Sonnets of Shakespeare, published by Cambridge University Press. It's available as a beautifully crafted hardback and also as an audiobook on Audible, narrated by Kenneth Branagh and Lalita Chakrabarti. And I couldn't have asked for a richer, more legible and more beautiful introduction to Shakespeare's verse. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege to have this conversation with you both. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ruben. What a great pleasure it's been. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation on the sonnets. For more fascinating events, make sure to follow the Cambridge Festival on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow the Say That Again Slowly podcast for more conversations with experts on body image, time travel, aliens, counter speech, and much more. <laughs>